This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Role-playing game. We here at the Word of the Week appreciate big, round numbers as much as anyone. In our second anniversary Lost episode, we noted that it's customary to celebrate milestone numbers like 10 and 25 and 50 and 100. And there are currently two big round numbers that we're celebrating here. First, there's the number 50. This year is the 50th year of the original longest running gaming convention in the world. At least that's how Gen Con describes itself. Well, that and the best four days in gaming. Now, Gen Con is an important event for us gamers. Not only is it a massive general nerd fest and a massive specific role-playing gaming fest, its origins are wrapped up in the origins of the hobby that we celebrate here week after week. See, Gen Con was originally the Lake Geneva Wargaming Convention, and it started in 1968 in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which also just happened to be the birthplace of the first role-playing game. The one we talk about the most, Dungeons and Dragons. We bring this up for two reasons. First, the entire Word of the Week team, all both of us, are going to be at Gen Con 50 next week. For those not listening on release date, that's starting on Thursday, August 17th of 2017. On that very day, Thursday, August 17th, at 12 noon, we will be giving a special live Word of the Week performance of a brand new and very special Word of the Week. Tickets are still available through the Gen Con event system, at least at the time of this recording. And we've got a link to the event in the description of this episode. The event is free, and if you don't manage to secure a ticket before the show, you're welcome to drop by the Pennsylvania Station Ballroom of the Crown Plaza Hotel to see if we've got room for you. The other reason we bring this up is because this episode is actually a big round number for us as well. This is our 100th episode, and we've decided to do something a little different. Every week we talk about the words and concepts and ideas that have found their way into the games we play, especially tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. But we've never talked about the game itself, or the games themselves. Because games in general, and role-playing games in particular, have a long, rich history far longer and richer than you might suspect. So today, we're going to tell the story of role-playing games. But unlike most people who tell this story, we're not starting with a game club in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in the 1970s. No. To really tell this story, we have to travel back a few thousand years. Fortunately, along the way we'll be able to pick up a time machine. Now, we know that we have a diverse listener base, and we're aware that some of you might not be familiar with tabletop role-playing games at all, and that's fine. We try to cater to all sorts of geeky fancies here, from video games to fantasy novels to comic book movies and everything else. But we, the creators of the show, are first and foremost tabletop role-playing gamers. And that's where the impetus and inspiration for this show came from. So those of you in the know about RPGs and D&D and GMs and PCs and Thacko, please forgive us for a paragraph or two while we explain our hobby 
to our nerdy linguophilic kin. The most famous tabletop role-playing game out there, and arguably the most popular, is Dungeons and Dragons. But D&D is not the only role-playing game. It's just the first one, and the biggest one. And all role-playing games play pretty much the same way. Each of the small handful of players takes on the role of a character in a fantasy adventure story. Or in a horror story, or a sci-fi story, or a superhero story. The genre varies from game to game. The game's referee, often called the Game Master or Dungeon Master, presents the players with a scene from the story. For example, the characters might find themselves in a maze of dwarvish ruins under the foggy mountains trying to find their way through the mines of Lesia. When suddenly a group of orcs and a cave troll ambush the heroes. The game master then asks each player how they respond. One might draw his bow and pepper the orcs. Another might cast a mighty spell. Still another might charge forward with shield and sword ready to hold off the onslaught. The players are free to do whatever they can imagine. The game master uses the rules of the game to determine the outcomes. And thus, a story plays out, as good as any movie. Better than most movies nowadays. But with the players playing the heroes. That's a role-playing game. The stories and situations and characters vary from game to game and from adventure to adventure. But the stories are all about the heroes the players create. And the players are free to do whatever they wish within the bounds of the story and the world in which the story takes place. There are no invisible walls. There's never any complaining about why Spyro can't jump and why Metroid can't crawl. There's just a clever game master who can use the rules of the game to make anything happen or not happen. Now, the concept of playing a role is central to the concept of a role-playing game, but it's only recently that the concept has been applied to games. Role-playing itself has actually been around for far longer the idea of playing a role derives from acting, of course. And that goes way back. In Europe, the acting tradition goes all the way back to the 6th century BCE and to an Athenian named Thespis. Now, Thespis has been credited as the inventor of dramatic tragedy, but that's not really what he did. What he did was invent acting. See, before he came along, according to several Greek sources, including Aristotle, all Greek stage performances were choral. That is, they consisted of a group of people standing around telling a story. But Thespis added the idea of having a person on stage delivering speeches as if they were a character in the story. And supposedly, that is the origin of acting, and why actors today are called thespians. Thespis also, shortly after the first reviews were published and audience reaction was clear, founded the first traveling acting troupe. And supposedly he introduced the idea of seating. It's from acting that we get the word role, that is R-O-L-E, as in a part in a play. And it actually comes from the old French word role, which referred to the sheet of paper on which an actor's part was written. Now, obviously there followed a long history of acting out roles for entertainment. And we will be coming back to that in just a moment. But right now, we're less interested in actors playing a written role and more interested in the idea of a person adopting a role and then playing it out in a more improvised way. And we don't mean improvisational theater. 
See, role-playing of that sort has also been around a long time, mostly in the form of children's games, wherein children adopt adult roles and play out various scenes. But in the 1930s, role-playing would become more than a game thanks to an influential experimental psychologist named Kurt Lewin. Lewin was a believer in a German theory known as Gestalt Psychology. The basic tenet of Gestalt Psychology is that a person's mind and thoughts and psyche can't be understood merely in terms of either natural biological evolution or purely in terms of life experiences. Instead, the psyche is a complex thing that grows up as the result of all sorts of influences that are constantly influencing each other. This is summed up in the oft-misquoted phrase, the whole is other than the sum of its parts. But Lewin, was also a proponent of the theory that psychology was not just something for lecture halls and academic discussion. He was very focused on practical psychology and practical experiments. And so, he began a practice that he called action research. The idea began simply enough. During his normal daily interactions with others, he might notice an opportunity to test someone's psychological response to an idea he had. So he would adopt a role and see how the person responded. Over time, this grew into the practice of designing psychological laboratory experiments in which he would transpose people, both subjects and researchers, into different roles to test reactions. This soon became a standard in psychology and sociology and actually became the structure for one of the most famous and most criticized of psychology experiments. Stanley Milgram's famous obedience experiment. In that experiment, each subject was told that they were participating in an experiment that had to do with teaching, learning, and memory formation. The subject was to teach a fellow research subject some fact. And if the student failed to learn the fact and repeat it, the teacher was to punish them with increasingly powerful electric shocks. In truth, the student was a confederate and an actor, the electric shocks were faked, and the student merely acted as if they were in increasingly excruciating pain. They were role-playing. The real intent of the experiment was to determine whether people would do terrible things to other people if a scientist was telling them to. The answer was... shocking. Now, Milgram's experiments have been repeated, changed, and criticized, and they have also been held up as an example of the need for strong ethical guidelines in psychological experimentation. But we just wanted to point out that role-playing became a major component in psychological experimentation and remains so to this day. It has also become a major component in psychological therapy. That is, it is often helpful in conflict resolution to ask people to see things from the perspective of other people. And role-playing is, essentially, about projecting yourself into the position of another person and trying to figure out how they would handle a given situation. And why. And that requires you to understand their motives. And that is why role-playing also became very useful as a training tool. In 1963, at the University of Southern California, Professor of Neurology Howard S. Barrows developed an important innovation in medical education. See, medical education was very academic. It was done in classrooms and lecture halls and the occasional laboratory. 
And that meant students got their heads filled with a lot of facts. But what they lacked was the ability to deal with patients in a practical way. They could rattle off a list of symptoms of this disease or that, but how to assess a patient, get them to describe their symptoms, and recognize signs of the less obvious symptoms? They couldn't do it. And so he brought in role players. The idea was simple. Bring in a person, coach them on their symptoms, and let them play the role of a patient for a medical student. And it revolutionized medical education. Today, most teaching hospitals and medical universities use a version of Barrow's method in their training programs. In fact, there's a published list of so-called SPs, or standard patients, with symptoms and motivations and all the tools a role player would need to pretend to be such a person. And most hospitals actually employ part-time role players to act the part of standard patients. If you were ever interested in making money role-playing, here's a way to do it. Since then, role-playing has become a standard tool in education and training. Role-playing is used to teach children interpersonal skills. It is used by companies for everything from professional resolution and sensitivity training to sales and customer service skills training. And the American military, among many others in the world, has started using role-playing as part of its training. And that became especially important in the various conflicts in the Middle East and the Near East when soldiers had to gain the trust of local civilians as part of their missions to root out insurgents, terrorists, and other dangerous enemies. But none of these examples have anything to do with role-playing for amusement. See, in Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing, adopting the role of a character, is only half the story. The other half is playing a game. For thousands of years, human beings have played games, and there are a lot of theories as to why we are drawn to games. Obviously, games appeal to a lot of our base human instincts. They allow us to hone our skills. Sports and physical games allow us to build strength, coordination, motor control, and so on. Strategic and mental games allow us to sharpen our wits and strengthen our minds. In that respect, we're not much different from most animals, especially predatory animals, who engage in play to gain vital hunting and survival skills. But we are also social creatures, and games allow us to interact socially while pursuing a common goal. Or competing. And competition is also a part of our base nature. We are driven to compete. When we say we've been playing games for thousands of years, we're not being hyperbolic. The first archaeological evidence of a board game was found in various Egyptian tombs, including that of King Tutankhamun. The oldest of these was buried in 3500 BCE. The game was called Senet. It consisted of a flat board, three squares wide by ten squares long, with about a half dozen pieces for each player. We don't know what the rules were but it seems to have been a racing game. Each player tried to move all of their pieces across the board by casting lots or sticks in lieu of dice. As time went on, the Senate boards gained complex decorations of religious significance. Another board game that may be just as old is the game of Moncala, which originated in Africa, though archeologists and historians aren't sure quite when it originated. Moncala is a counting game. The board consists of gouges dug out of a wooden board and an oval track. Players distribute and move pieces around the track one at a time 
in an effort to capture as many pieces as possible in your own home space. Takita Mankala is counting fast and thinking ahead. Now, we could literally list historical board games and sports for hours and never run out. We could talk about the Indian morality game Vaikuntapali, on which the modern game Shoots and Ladders was based. We could discuss the endlessly over-discussed history of the Landlord's Game and Monopoly, and whether it was pro or anti-capitalist and who really invented it. And Chalpat. And chess. But all of that just establishes the long history of playing games. However, the game we're concerned about. The ones that form the seeds for Dungeons and Dragons. Were a different sort of game. They were born from military recreations. War games have existed for as long as wars have existed. And throughout history, they have blurred the line between simulation, game, and role-playing. The ancient Sumerians used to reenact famous battles for training and entertainment. The Romans loved war games. They would even flood the great Roman Colosseum from time to time to play out naval battles to the delight of the crowd. During the medieval period, Jousts and melees and other tournaments were all the rage. But those sorts of games lacked something integral to Dungeons and Dragons and modern role-playing games. They lacked a table. Now, we're going to skip over chess because, although it is technically a game about war, it is also highly abstract. Instead, we're going to discuss the 19th century Prussian Kriegspiel. That name simply means war game. Kriegspiel was a popular game among Prussian military officers, and it involved elements that you might be surprised to learn aren't as modern as you might think. It involved a shallow, box-like tabletop filled with sand. A sand table. The sand could be molded to form hills and valleys and terrain of all sorts, and it involved markers to represent military units, and it involved using dice to determine the outcome of combat actions. Kriegspiel was truly the first modern tabletop war game. But it wasn't terribly accessible to the masses. Then, along came H.G. Wells. Herbert George Wells was a visionary English writer. Born in 1866, Wells had always suffered from poor health. After an accident left him bedridden, he discovered a love affair with books that he would keep for his entire life. He consumed novels by Charles Dickens and Jonathan Swift, as well as books by Enlightenment philosophers like Voltaire, and science and math texts. He was forced into work for some time when his family fell into poverty, but his brilliance won him a college scholarship, and he was able to study physics, chemistry, astronomy, and biology, as well as history and philosophy. And while at school, he published a short story called The Chronic Argonauts, which dealt with a weird idea of being able to travel forwards and backwards through time. It was a hit. In 1895, Wells wrote his first novel, The Time Machine. It was an entertaining story about a scientist who builds a machine that lets him travel to the Earth's far future. The book explored all sorts of contemporary social and scientific topics, including evolution, and the English class structure of the day. It was an overnight success, and thus began the career of one of the most prolific, famous, and visionary science fiction authors in the world. 
But Wells also published something else, something not nearly as well known. Wells was interested in history and in games, and in 1915 he published a small book called Little Wars. It wasn't a novel. It was a set of rules that interested amateurs could follow to play war games on a tabletop. Wells even suggested that interested gamers could collect various figures to represent their forces to add a bit of flavor and a greater sense of involvement in the game. The game enjoyed modest popularity at the time, but it wasn't until 1953 when tabletop wargaming would explode in popularity. That was when Charles Roberts developed a board game called Tactics. Tactics was small, cheap, and sold via mail order. It consisted of a paper board marked out in hexagons and little cardboard square counters marked with symbols and statistics to represent the military forces. Tactics also introduced a number of staples to the tabletop wargaming genre. It introduced the idea of movement being slowed by terrain, and it included long tables of combat odds that showed how dice rolls would be affected as different types of units, such as armored tanks and infantry, fought against each other. On the back of its success, Charles Roberts founded a company called Avalon Hill. By the 60s and 70s, wargaming had a cult following, and gaming clubs were being set up at schools and universities across the country. Some played hex and cardboard chit board games published by companies like Avalon Hill. Others enjoyed the more freeform tabletop experience offered by miniature figures and sand tables. But the one constant was that wargaming remained firmly rooted in historical simulation. And to be honest, fairly modern historical simulation. You could play in anything from the Napoleonic Wars to World Wars I and II. But it was hard to find much outside of the narrow range of modern warfare. But something else was happening during that period. Thanks to an extremely influential series of novels called the Lord of the Rings series by J.R.R. Tolkien, interest in the fantasy world of elves and dwarves and dragons and wizards and medieval warfare was blossoming. And it was growing among the same nerdy folk who also loved war games. There was a clamor for a war game that allowed you to play out wars between orcs and humans or knights and dragons or wizards and other wizards. But there just weren't any good games that handled the medieval warfare that would serve as the backbone for such a game. Except for one. Two friends in a town called Lake Geneva in Wisconsin named Ernest Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin had written a war game for the members of their modest gaming club designed to simulate medieval warfare. Real world warfare, no fantasy stuff. It was called Chainmail and Gygax had even set up his own little company to sell the thing by mail order. Tactical Studies Rules, TSR Incorporated. Meanwhile, another young man had been experimenting with war games in a different way. Dave Arneson and his friend Dave Wesley had gotten a little bored with the overly complicated war games of the day. To spice up their games, they would pick individual goals for their armies, not just win the war, but things like defeat a specific unit with a specific unit. And that planted the idea of playing games with smaller armies and personal goals. And when they got hold of Chainmail, 
the idea became even smaller. Individual knights leading small units on individual quests for personal glory. And one night, Arneson decided to send the knights themselves, just the individuals, into a maze of tunnels underneath a medieval castle to do battle with the terrible things lurking there. When Gygax and Arneson met, they put their ideas together and began developing a new game. One that combined Gygax's medieval war simulation and unerring ability to build great statistical models with Arneson's ideas about individual warriors pursuing personal goals in dangerous mazes and catacombs. And in 1974, TSR Inc. published Dungeons and Dragons, rules for fantastic medieval war games campaigns playable with paper and pencil and miniature figures. In the years that followed, Gygax and Arneson would have a falling out due to creative differences. Gygax would struggle to maintain control of the company he built, eventually being ousted by former partners and friends. The game would be revised and re-released and expanded. TSR would go bankrupt. Games company Wizards of the Coast would buy TSR and republish and revise and expand Dungeons and Dragons again and again. And toy giant Hasbro would buy Wizards of the Coast. And Dungeons and Dragons would be republished and revised and expanded again. And again. And a publisher named Paizo would spin off their own game, their own version of Dungeons and Dragons called Pathfinder. And an entire industry and an entire genre would grow around Dungeons and Dragons. But those are all stories for another time. Or rather, just more chapters in an ongoing story about games that started almost 5,000 years ago. As we close out this, our 100th episode, we want to take the time to thank all of our Patreon supporters for making this episode, and everyone that comes after it, possible. We love doing this show, and we wouldn't be able to do it without your support. We want to thank all of our listeners, every last one. Because stories aren't stories if there's no one to hear them. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.